Coalface. I am Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world, beyond the headlines, and look for lessons learned that can inspire us. If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at thecoalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you. Hi, Lila, and hi, Siri. Um, I'm really delighted to be co-hosting this episode with you, Siri, uh, together with uh, Lila Ramos-Shahani. And uh, Lila was a classmate uh, when the two of you uh, studied for the Fletcher School's GMAP degree in International Affairs. Um, I had a chance to speak with uh, Lila ahead of this conversation a few weeks ago. And I realized I rarely have the, the chance of, of speaking with someone so embedded in their country's history, um, politics and society, in this case the Philippines, but also someone trying to shape her country's direction towards, let's call it, greater inclusion and, and, and better governance. And um, I mean, with, with such a rich life, um, it's hard to do you, Lila, justice with a brief intro, but Siri, uh, why don't you give it a try? Hey, Philippe. Um, good to be with you again at the Coalface, and I'm really happy to welcome Lila to the podcast today. Um, she is a member of our class that I knew would have some really fascinating um, stories and information to share with us, so I'm really pleased that she's uh, made the time to be with us today. Um, just to give you a brief introduction, uh, Lila is an expert and associate member of two international scientific committees of the International Council on Monuments and Sites, where she specializes in the interpretation and presentation of cultural heritage sites and intangible cultural heritage. Uh, during her tenure as Secretary General of the Philippine National Commission to UNESCO, she and her team obtained four UNESCO designations for the country in intangible cultural heritage, memory of the world, and creative cities. Lila has taught at several universities in the Philippines and has worked for Oxford University Press and the United Nations, UNICEF, and UNDP in New York. She has a BA from Brown and an MA from Fletcher, as we know, and is a doctoral candidate at Oxford. So, Lila, um, so good to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, everybody. Hi, uh, Philippe. Hi, Siri. Um, Philippe, it's really a, a pleasure to be part of Cold Face. And thank you so much for having me. And Siri, it's really a joy to see you again and, and um, revisit all those crazy years that, uh, you know, that we went through. So thank you so much to both of you for having me. Thank you, Lila. So, Lila, th th there's really so much that we could talk about. So, w what I propose, if it's okay with you, is that we frame our conversation around the various um, pivots or, or turning points in your life, and then try to reflect together on some of the um, lessons learned from your incredible experience, such as, for instance, the ways um, poverty can be invisible to government or the limits of what government can do on human development and even human rights. Um, and then maybe later in the conversation um, on the ways 
um, dominant cultural narratives can make some people grievable and others not. And so indeed how the process of um, othering, as you've called it, uh, is embedded in a, in a nation's um, story. So I think, um, Leela, there, there's so much there that we want to share, but I think that um, it would be great if you can introduce yourself a bit to, to our listeners and start at the beginning, because I think, um, as, as Philippe mentioned, you come from a sort of political aristocracy of the Philippines, and I think you've been related to almost every president, including, <laughs> including the current one in one way or another. And indeed, your your mother um, was a, a pioneer in uh, Filipino um, diplomacy and the women's rights movement, and you know was was really someone quite quite extraordinary. So there's a there's a, a really fascinating lineage that you come from. So maybe you can just start at the beginning and, and tell us about that background. Before I start, I just want to say that. Philippe, I really appreciate your having been such a good listener the first time we spoke because uh, the framework that you've chosen really encapsulates most of the important things I wanted to say. So, Siri, to answer your questions, um, your first question, um, I wouldn't say that I'm related to every single president of the Philippines, but um, yes, my my uh, father was Indian. And he was a scholar and a writer, but uh, my mother was from the Philippines, and um, her father was the Secretary of Foreign Affairs in the Philippines, and her brother was the former president of the Philippines, Fidel V. Ramos. My father died when I was a year old. My parents were living in New Jersey because my mother refused to be a woman in India, and my father thought that the Philippines was a cultural wasteland. And so, absurdly enough for both of them, they chose New Jersey, which I guess was a place they could afford. So my father was teaching in the university and my, my mother was working for the Commission on Human Rights at the UN. When my dad died, my mother brought all of us back to the Philippines and she joined the diplomatic corps and she became the first Philippine ambassador to the East Bloc when we were just beginning relations with what was then Eastern Europe. So she opened the embassy in Romania and was accredited to Hungary and what was then East Germany. And then we went to Australia and then we went to Austria for high school. I was in high school and then we went to Kenya and then I uh, went to college in the States, and after college, I was all set to do a PhD track on um, post-colonial literature in English. And my mother said, well, what do you know about post-coloniality and, and women? I mean, you're, like, you're living here in the States, and, you know... What do you mean, third world rights? You have to go back and know your country. And I was quite miserable at the time because I had absolutely no understanding of what country I could possibly be belong to. Because even before going to Romania, 
my my first school, primary school, my mother had put me in a Mandarin Chinese school. So the first foreign language besides English and French and Filipino and the Filipino dialects like uh, Ilocano, um, the first language was actually Mandarin and Cantonese in the corridors, you know. And then by the time I went to Romania, everything was in Romanian. So I was very confused. And um, in literature, we say deterritorialized, like I didn't feel like it was part of any territory. So to say, you have to go home and learn about your country. I was like, huh? You know, <laughs> but there wasn't really anywhere for me to go. If, if there was resistance to my going to graduate school, I was all set to go to Berkeley. And, you know, and so I went back to the Philippines and um, I started working in the cultural center of the Philippines. And it was an ethnographic anthropological museum. And so I had to learn all these ethnic ritual traditions. And it was very different from everything I had studied because, you know, I studied, you know, French and German literature and art history in college, you know, and then suddenly here was all this ethnographic stuff. And it was really quite wonderful for me, I think, because it forced me to rethink Everything that I had considered to be sacred, you know, in college was just like put to question all the frameworks, all the criteria, all the hierarchies of what constitutes good art and good literature. And, you know, um, all of that was put into question. So I did that, but it was a government bureaucracy. So at a certain point, I kind of reached my limit. And I went off to teach in the University of the Philippines. I taught literature, French and German literature again. And then a lot of my students plagiarized. And I was really, really depressed about that because I had said to them, um, you know, I don't really care if you're not brilliant. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be original. All I want is for you to be honest. Because I was teaching modernism, so it was kind of necessary that we talk about being authentic to yourself. And that so many of them plagiarized really made me feel like, gosh, I wasn't a good teacher. What does that mean about me? And then my colleagues in the university were like, Leela, for heaven's sakes, you know, what's the problem? Everybody plagiarizes. The head of the department plagiarizes, and the head of that department plagiarizes. I mean, just get with it. And I was like, well, if, if I have to get with it um, about that, then, you know, I'm not in the right place. You know, if this is acceptable, then perhaps I have the wrong métier. And so I said, well, my father um, is Indian. I need to get to know my Indian side. Um, and instead of going to Britain to study Indian writing and English, I'm going to go with my mom for a 10-day trip to India. So we went and we were just going to meditate for 10 days on a mountain in, in Rajasthan that overlooked uh, Rajasthan and all of parts of Pakistan. 
But then I fell in love with India and I said, well, why the hell am I going to England to study Indian writing and English when I should study it here? So I said, mom, you know what? I'm staying here. Bye. See you. And <laughs> she was, of course, you know, she was like, <laughs> and so um, I thought I could study literature in India, but the idea of Indian writing in English is actually an Anglo-American construct. So you can learn it, you know, in Europe and in the States, but in India, you study Bengali literature in Bengal, Marathi literature in Maharashtra, you know, but if it's in English, it's a little bit more complicated. So I ended up studying uh, India, uh, Indian, modern Indian history. So when the British Raj came to India and I thought, well, this will be a good background before I do my PhD in literature, because at least I know, you know, the history. So I was there in, in India. I spent two, two and a half, three years traveling around a great deal, meeting family. And um, as I was telling Philip earlier, if um, Australia and Austria were very, very racist and being an Indian looking child, in a Chinese school was not allowed, it's a xenophobic moment. Being a woman in India was equally stressful for me. And I just um, sort of felt it was not the right place for me again. And so I went to America where I thought, you know, maybe it would be easier to be a woman of color. And my first job was with Oxford University Press, and I I was uh, doing philosophy and linguistics. But then after 9-1-1, I felt that corporate America was really not a place that was of any intellectual or spiritual interest to me in any shape or form. By corporate America, you meant even working for Oxford University Press? What, what do you mean by, by that? Well, it was a corporation. I mean, and the CEO was, you know, earning $250,000 a year and the little editorial assistants were earning $16,000 a year. But it wasn't even that. It was the fact that the editors didn't read the manuscripts that scholars spent 30 years working on. They just decided on what was marketable and what was not marketable, what was profitable. And I actually loved the writing and I loved working with the authors, but there was no time. You know, I mean, I we had to do 55 manuscripts a year. And so it was the market that was governing things. And so I said, well, you know, and then when 911 happened, and I was there, and New York was so changed, um, I decided that I was going to try to work for the UN. And my mother had been at the UN, so I, I knew it was not a perfect place to be, but I thought I would try. And so I started out uh, handling research at UNICEF. And uh, then I went to UNDP and I became a policy advisor and a communications advisor. 
And that was when I realized if I was going to move up in the UN system, I needed a PhD. And so I, I started by getting my MA at Fletcher, where I met Siri. And that was a complete eye-opener. And I should say that um, I started out studying literature and art history. But of course, you know, you can't really get a job except in academe as literature major. It's very different if you study journalism, then it's very easy. But um, obviously, political science and international relations were going to be more practical for me uh, in the UN system. So, and of course, being in that world and after, you know, during the the so-called war on terror, um, I was very fascinated anyway with so many developments uh, going on around me. So I went to Fletcher. Um, how did your, you know, because you mentioned your, your mother had spent time there and she had a pretty, you know, distinguished career at the UN particularly, was that was she happy that you were there? Did she think that was a good place for you? My mother, I think, in retrospect, derailed me for decades because instead of my being the writer that I am and studying literature, which is my heart and my soul, really, my mother kept on saying, you know, all my life that your father was a writer and, you know, he was always broke and I had to support him. And so you must, must, must have a job. And I said, yes, but my job is to write and to think about what I'm writing. And she said, no, 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 I mean, and a job, job, you know. And so there was always this pressure. Mm -hmm. And so for her, I think... Uh, working in the Philippine government or working in the UN, those were acceptable jobs. And I think, you know, even in my in the Ramos family, the family of my uncle, I mean, there's all these hierarchies about what constitutes an acceptable, you know, métier. And so she was happy, I think, that I was at the UN. It was me who was like, ugh, you know, because it's... It, it, <laughs> It's not very exciting intellectually, but, you know, you feel like you're doing good work and you're helping the world until you don't. You know, when as Jeffrey Sachs used to say, for every dollar that goes to the UN, you know, only 10 cents gets to the field and the rest goes to all these fancy, expensive consultants, among whom I was one. You know, but since I was not doing field work and I was writing essays and papers and, you know, press releases and research, you know, brochures, I never got to see the school in Rwanda that got built. I never got to feel any of that. And so because my skills were most required at headquarters. Anyway, so at Fletcher, um, my my thesis was on genocide, and uh, it was on uh, 
the impact of education on ethnic violence. And so um, I really ransacked the universe to try to understand why certain groups of people um, do such terrible forms of annihilations on other groups of people. And um, so I, while I was doing the, the thesis, I was reading neurobiology and anthropology and history and, you know, it, and in a nutshell, I came to the conclusion that if I were only to use political science and international relations to understand genocide and xenophobia, um, the solutions as well as the level of analysis was actually quite limited. It's not that I, I started out wanting to be interdisciplinary. I mean, I don't, my advisors were like, oh my gosh, Leela, you know, just calm down. Neurobiology, that is not my area of expertise. You were taking thesis a lot more seriously than I think a lot of us, unfortunately, to our, to our detriment. Yeah, I, I remember one time, Siri in class, we were, I just burst into tears, you know, like a crazy person because I was, we were talking about genocide and I just couldn't stop crying. And so uh, I felt it incumbent upon myself, Lord knows why, I felt this burden to understand and help resolve this, the magnitude of this issue. And um, essentially, I felt, well, political science and international relations, they don't really provide you with the methodological equipment to critique structures of power. You know, um, whereas, and this is where the twin influences of uh, the humanities, the arts, on the one hand, and then the social sciences, like political science on the other, have always provided a very interesting cleavage in my life around which I have pivoted, you know, because in literature and in the art and, and lit critical thinking, you're always critiquing you're deconstructing, you're critiquing structures of power, but you have no need to provide solutions, which is to me really the frustrating part of all the humanities people because it's like, well, now that I have informed you about all the various and sundry problems in Nicaragua, I leave you to your thoughts. Thank you. Goodbye. You know, and it's like, great. Now what? You know, and the pleasure of the social sciences is that people are actually, you know, we need to provide policy proposals. We need concrete, you know, and I feel that both are useful. And so. And, and in a way, they represent both sides of your, your parents, right? You know, your father. Exactly. And the and your mother, the very practical academic or very practical politician who 
who did put through quite a lot of really important legislation that that affected the lives of of you know millions of people. Yes, and I think what's interesting about that Siri is that um my I had a lot of friends in the Philippines who had been tortured during martial law under Ferdinand Marcos. And when they first met me, they were very suspicious of me because, you know, I'm distantly related to Ferdinand Marcos. And then even though my uncle, Fidel Ramos, had been part of ousting Marcos, he was still a power broker. And so a lot of people activists, artists, advocates were suspicious of me in the beginning. Um, But then I guess after getting to know me for decades, they realized I was okay. And um, they told me some terrible, terrible stories about what they had gone through that never left me. But one thing I will say is, although my close friends were artists and intellectuals, my mother always said, you know, um, there's only so much you can do by ranting and raving on the sidelines, which is what a lot of my friends were doing. I mean, and this is no disrespect to them, but it was like, you know, and in college, I was certainly free South Africa, brown divest, you know, I was certainly like that. But then my mother would say, you can do so much more to help the world if you subvert from the inside. If you yourself become a power broker and you stoop to conquer. So it was always, again, that two points of anchorage, mother and father, literature and the social sciences and then public. And, and how about... By then, had you adopted the Philippines as your country, or were you still kind of uh, what? What was the word that you used earlier? De deterritorialized. Deterritorialized. Sorry, like, I know. It, but I love that. I love that word because it sounded like in your early years you were closest to the U.S. in a way, from kind of a, what was familiar at least, or what felt like home. And but at some point you must have felt that no, the Philippines is where where you want it to have a make an impact. Maybe did the legacy of, of through your mother's side did that kind of start driving where you put your energies? Well, I was actually going to get to that. Um, I think that um, where a person goes to high school. Is absolutely, for me at any rate, it was where my closest friendships, my grade school and high school, but friendships, but also this kind of uh, deep intellectual awakening, you know, was high school. So that was Vienna, Austria. And, you know, it was, as I mentioned, quite a racist place in which to grow up. And so I didn't feel I belonged there. Um, and I think I was going to say that, so we're, we were back to uh, UNDP, and I was still, 
you know, I had an Iranian boyfriend. Uh, we only spoke French. My friends were Indian and one was, you know, it was like I was part of this accidental tribe of deracinated human beings. And we all accepted that. But you can in New York be like that and be quite happy in that way. And then um, I uh, got into a PhD program at Oxford and I thought that I would come back to the UN after I had the PhD and end up being like my mother. And of course, that was not the plan, but it was like, you know, placate her already and just sort of do the job job, and, you know. And so I went to Oxford and what I was saying earlier was because I realized that if we're going to stop genocide, I, I realized that Fletcher, if we're going to make a dent on genocide and you're going to study what the UN has done and you're going to study what governments have done, you're going to end up in a dead end, at least with respect to the issue of genocide. Because I was looking at all these textbooks that people were writing in the former Soviet bloc, you know, textbooks in, in Sudan, you know, textbooks in different countries where genocide had taken place. And I realized, my God, you know, it's really secondary education where people's minds are conditioned very deeply. And so it's very important to go back to literature and education. So I, that's why I went to Oxford. And there I said, okay, I was going to do Indian writing in English, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, um, my academic advisor could not stay at Oxford because she got a fancy offer in New York. So I followed her to New York. Okay, now I'm getting to answer Philippe's question. So I was in New York. I was still at Oxford. I was moonlighting at UNDP. And I was quite happy with my cat and my my partner. And, and, um, and then there was this giant, terrible, colossal typhoon in the Philippines. And thousands and thousands of people drowned. And this was not a new thing. The only thing new about it was the Internet and the fact that, I mean, I grew up with typhoons and you know, tsunami this, and, you know, it's just the way it is in certain parts of the world. But this time, I was in Manhattan, but I could see so many of my dear friends, you know, and family on their rooftops with their laptops showing, you know, the waters uh, and, you know, their cars underwater. And, you know, I mean, and I guess it hit home in a very different way. I think that when you grow up in a certain uh, socioeconomic milieu, you're, there are buffers. I mean, you don't see so many things, certainly growing up in my family. But then suddenly here's Facebook, and we didn't know the evils of Facebook then, but it was like, oh my God, you know, all my friends and what was happening, and I was so outraged. And as I was explaining to Philippe, at that point, um, my uncle, the former president, who tended to anoint 
presidents in the Philippines um, was about to anoint this one candidate who was responsible for the fact that for 500,000 people in Manila, there were only 13 lifeboats. And he could not account for where all the other lifeboats had gone, but clearly they didn't go to the people. So I was really furious. And that's when I decided to write a letter to my uncle uh, where I critiqued him. And, you know, as you know from your time in Asia, both of you, the, to be in a, a patriarchal family and you're the youngest female, it's not really done for you to, you know, critique your patriarch. But I wrote a loving critique. Um, and I said, look, if you don't respond in one month, because I knew he wasn't going to respond, because um, that's how the women in our family are. I mean, unless you're like my mother, who kind of, I think, came into her own because my father was dead, essentially. I said, if you're not going to respond, I'm going to put this in a blog, okay? And I didn't know what a blog really was, and neither did he. And so, in to make a long story short, he didn't respond. I put it in a blog, and it went viral. And then... At that point, it, so it was in the TV, radio, newspapers, LA Times, and then the Noi Noi Aquino, who was running for pre the presidency, his campaign team said, hey, you want to come and help in the campaign of Noi Noi Aquino? Since you, you know, in your letter to your uncle, you said that you thought he was honest. I said, yeah, okay. So I thought I would help for one month. But then there were so many problems in the campaign because we were competing with with people who had so much money, I mean, so much corruption, that they needed my help. And I kept on going. And I want to say that it's very hard to do communications work in a lot of developing countries where people don't have TV or laptops or internet, where a lot of people are not literate, where a lot of people listen to the radio, but it's very expensive to get on the radio. Um, so, and then there are like over a hundred languages in the Philippines and you know, 7,101 islands. So how do you do communications, you know, in that kind of a context? It's hard. Um, so when, when um, Noi Noi Aquino became president in 2010, uh, I was asked to join the sub-cabinet. And so I was asked to be an assistant secretary in the office of the president. By that point, I was fully immersed in being Filipino. You know, that whole time, to answer your question, Philippe, that whole time of being in the campaign trail and and just, you know, digging up information on the statements of assets and liabilities of these candidates, you know, and doing it in subterfuge, 
you know, I learned a lot. So by that point, so we're talking 2010, um, I was, because I think when I worked in the cultural center in 89, and I taught in the University of the Philippines in 92, I loved the Philippines, but then that plagiarism thing made me shun it and reject it for like two decades, you know? So I had to kind of go through all of these contortions before coming back. So um, when I started uh, in the cabinet, I was uh, doing communications for the National Anti-Poverty Commission. And there I... It was very good for me because I didn't know very much about poverty. Like I was always studying, you know, art and philosophy or, you know, politics. But poverty was like, and and in government, it's like economists handle poverty and lawyers handle human rights. Literature people just go away and be quiet. You know, and so here I was trying to find a way of being a part of something that really just, you know, I was really a very, I, I was like a, a cat among the pigeons. You know, I think poverty is, is something that is very hard to talk about, right? Like, it's not, not distasteful, but it, it, it sort of exposes our inhumanity in so many ways that I think a lot of people prefer not even to think about it. And, and so if you're having to actually communicate about it and explain and advocate, I, I can only imagine that, that it's, you know, the, the challenge of actually understanding that, as you say, from both an economic and human perspective, but then being able to communicate to that to people who really probably don't want to hear about it that much. Absolutely. I think for a lot of people, they were like, well, Lila, if you're going to work in government, why are you not in, you know, culture? Or why are you not in foreign affairs? Why poverty? But poverty was actually my first choice. Because again, it's this very, I think you read Camus when you're 16 years old and it never leaves you and you feel you have this moral ought to look evil in the eye and understand it. You feel like, yes, you know, I was not trafficked, but I have no business living on this planet and getting old without knowing what life is like for them. And I felt that way about poverty. And what was so wonderful about working for the National Anti-Poverty Commission was that suddenly it was like, oh my gosh, there's a big difference between income poverty and food poverty. Because a lot of people have no income. You know, a lot of people have no food. And then, excuse me, there's entrepreneurial poverty, which is very different from opportunity poverty. And so... I was like, oh, wow, you know, and shit, I didn't realize there were so many barriers on so many levels. And then um, another thing I was telling Philippe was that 
For example, the way when the government of the Philippines helps poor people, for example, in the form of conditional cash transfers, um, the way that they count who gets to get cash transfers, the poorest of the poor, it's through what you call a national household targeting system. And so like, let's say you have a man and he's got a wife and five kids, then he's got a mistress, then he's got two lovers and they all have kids and ah, where does the family begin and how does it end and goodness gracious. And so the government says, fine, if they're sharing a dining table, we have to be practical. That's, that's a family. We can't, no, there's no divorce in the Philippines. They're all living together. That's basically, we just have to be really rudimentary here. So, um, but what do you do with the poor people who have no homes? They have no household. So how can you count them in the national household targeting system? How can they be targeted if they live behind a tarp? And I... I remember one time I was so outraged because I kept on passing by this five-year-old girl. She was so beautiful. She has lovely curly hair and these giant eyes. And every time I would come home from work in government, you know, she would be there on the street corner. And one day I was coming from home really late like nine in the evening or something, and there she was again, and she had no underwear, and she was just standing there. And I was just, I was fed up, and I I just stopped the car, and I said, where are your parents? You know, and um, I discovered that her mother was a meth addict. Her father was a meth addict. And so I ended up having to find the parents and we, you know, I went along with, you know, the police and the social welfare people. We went to look for the house. And the first thing I said to the father was, why did you not lock your door uh, so that your child would not be in the middle of the street? And he said, ma'am, there is no door in my house. And, you know, it's that kind of thing where you're like, goodness gracious, I'm so bourgeois, you know, that I, and I went to the house and I see this house. It has no walls. It just has a roof, has no door. There are 11 kids. They're peeping at you, you know, through the window. And there's all this booze. And, of course, I hold all those children to social welfare. But what I'm saying is it's so, like, incredibly humbling what human beings live like. Like, we don't even realize. And then, at the same time, I was asked to be the spokesperson for the Interagency Council Against Human Trafficking. And so I was writing all of these newspaper columns about, you know, and for some reason, some human trafficking victims contacted me out of the blue. And um, 
in a nutshell, I I discovered from one woman who had jumped out of her car in Kuwait and walked to the Philippine embassy that um, this woman was being trafficked. And then as I put her through the system of going to the National Bureau of Investigation, telling her story, uh, going to a shelter, going to um, learn skills, going to a psychologist, trying to find her a job. In the process, I ended up finding 50 other victims like her, all of whom had been sex trafficked in Kuwait. And again, as I met them, I discovered all these children that were being used for cyber pornography. And like I met these parents who actually trafficked their kids. And I didn't, I, I was going to write, I thought, okay, I'm going to write about the men that are doing this only to realize that a lot of them were the mothers who were doing this. So that certainly was a paradigm shift. And then um, I, I would meet these young children, like seven-year-olds, five-year-olds, who had to have sex with their aunts and uncles and cousins on, on Skype. And the European market was just throwing in so much money. So it was like, I did not even know where to begin. I was just like, ah, you know. And so uh, we did, I did, we were able to close down about 30 recruitment agencies. But then, you know, the very next day, they just morphed with new names and new identities. And um, I was able to open up a criminal investigation and I ended up having to testify in Congress. And the members of the executive branch were basically suggesting that I should shut up and not say anything about my colleagues. And then the members of the legislative branch, the senators and the congressmen were basically saying, you better speak up or you're going to be on the line. And so, you know, it was really a terrifying time because as I told Philippe, my, my bodyguard had a higher salary than I did. Um, but my mother's example stayed with me. Like every time I had a speak, uh, a congressional hearing, she was there in her sneakers, you know, she'd be sitting in the bag with her hat and like, I knew she was rooting for me. So it sounds like you, you, you bit off a lot there with the sort of going down a path thinking, okay, well, I'm going to make some change. I'm going to help. I'm going to you know, leave my ivory tower a little bit and, and sort of, you know, really get in it. But once you get in it, you're in it. Right. And it's, it's, um, yeah, it's dark. It's very, very cool and very dark. Yeah. I mean, I, I can, I can only imagine when people are also seeing you as someone who, who can help them and someone who has that, that duty and that obligation that it must feel 
like a, a you know a really tremendous responsibility to to have and and to feel like you have to not only represent these people but but try to do something in a system that that isn't always working to to that end yeah and and in, when i was listening to your your story Lila, i was also it struck me that that in a way this was like your second or third experience in government seeing the limits of what government can do so on the poverty side like how hard it is to set up a system that actually um, um, delivers support for the people who actually need it um, and doesn't exclude whole rafts of, of needy people just for statistical reasons and the same on, on, on trafficking the difficulty of the government to um, be set up to protect people when in, in many instances members of the government themselves are part of the uh, of, of the problem so I, I, I wonder how is your thinking evolving actually on the the use and limits of of of, of, uh, of, of public government essentially I think when I was at Fletcher I really felt Gosh, I've got to be part of public policy. I was still on this, I have to help change the world and make it a better place. You know, and I know that sounds so kumbaya now, but I remember when I was six years old, somebody said, Lila, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a balsam to heal the wounds of the world. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe I said that, but it's like, I believe that. And I'm sure my mother, you know, and this moral ought, you know, in my life, the moral ought was so deep. It was never alegria, what do you enjoy, what is your elan vital, what's fun, what do you like, let's go, you know. It was never like that. It was always like, you must do this because the world needs you, you know. And so it's exhausting. Um, it's exhausting where, you know, it's like, for example, like now that I'm back to academe and I'm writing all this stuff, I have interviewed all of these survivors of torture. And, you know, they're my interviewees, but then there's a typhoon in the Philippines and they're all writing me, asking me for money. And it's like, no, I don't have a salary. I am actually a scholar and I am writing... But it's like they don't have anyone else to ask because like these human trafficking victims, for example, the government only allots money to provide you with two visits with a psychologist. There's no money for psychopharmacological intervention. So what that means is you go and the psychologist says, hmm, this is your story, huh? Okay, I'll see you next week. Then they see you a second time and they say, hmm, you are depressed because you have post-traumatic stress disorder. So good luck to you. Take care. Bye. Check. So it's like, you know, I mean, I was working with a woman who came in, who in Kuwait, her female employer stabbed her in her private parts and cut her clitoris and put Clorox. I'm sorry this sounds so, so, uh, so I don't mean to be vulgar. It's just life. It's truth. And, you know, um, we had to have her go through surgery and 
and you know, I mean, in in the Kafala system in the Middle East, if you run away from your employer, you go to jail. Even if you ran away because you were being tortured, the fact is you're like chattel. You're like you're a possession of your employer. So, um, okay, to answer Philippe's question, the limits of government. Yeah, I remember being so excited when Obama became president. Um, I remember being so excited when Noi Noi Aquino became president because he's a Noi Noi like Obama, the reformist. But we all saw how Obama was stymied, you know, in Congress, you know, in the House. I mean, there were so many types of filibustering that he had to to work around. And in the same way, I mean. The idea that you can have a return on investment within a six-year span is a very flawed idea. Um, you can't. I think, Leela, what you're saying is is exactly right. That you know, we we saw this with Obama, where there were, you know, we were coming off of the Bush years, and and there was so much frustration, and and we put so much hope onto Obama thinking, okay, this is, you know, a man of moral character and, and young and energetic and everything's going to be okay <laughs> because that's what we wanted. And, and, you know, we, we don't live in that kind of a system where, you know, one person uh, has that kind of power, you know, anyway, in, in, in the democratic system in the U S and, a lot of people got disappointed and disillusioned that he wasn't able to come through on all of the things that he talked about and all of the things, you know, every little thing that we thought he was going to be able to fix. Um, and, you know, I can imagine in the Philippines where, you know, perhaps you're dealing with with greater levels of corruption and greater levels of even, you know, bigger sociological problems that you know, there's only so much that one person's going to be able to do. I mean, I think I'm sort of curious about, you know, where, when you felt like you had maybe done enough there, or you had done what you could do, and then you chose to, to move away from government. I'm curious, what were, what were those um, elements that kind of made you think, okay, I'm, I, I've, I've done my, bit here for the moment. Um, I think I need to, to move on to some other things. Siri, that's a very profound point. The whole idea that um, there's only so much one person can do. I think that people don't really realize that uh, very often. And I think it's not really just in America, it's all over the world, this whole cult of personality almost. Um, I mean, there are some societies that are a lot more mature and think about substantive things like party politics and party funding, but for the most part, it's the charisma of the individual. And that can only take you so far. And I think the learning curve there is that 
you're not going to see a return on investment in six years. If you think that anyone can stop poverty or stop corruption, make a dent on racism, you know, make a dent on misogyny. I mean, look where we are with Roe v. Wade. I mean, it's like, so the point is, this work is for the long haul. And what, and I think that the big mistake that a lot of liberals make, I've made it, um, I've seen liberals, and not just liberals, but people in general, I mean, uh, in America, in Europe, I see it, and certainly in the Philippines, was once a person that you fought for is sitting, you kind of rest on your laurels and think, oh, time to relax and let's go swimming. And it's like, no, hun, it's not. Because waiting in the wings surreptitiously are the Donald Trumps of this world. And it is precisely, it is precisely the hubris that attends uh, the success of certain reformist governments and the complacency of thinking that now that we're here, we're good, man. This is this, you know, this is the end of history. Like, oh boy, I could have, you know, like how presumptuous can you get? So yes, I think that's very profound. Um, and so to get back to Philip's point about my recognition of the limits of government, well, precisely while I was in the Aquino administration. I saw that the very people who fought against corruption, the very people who were all about, you know, every, every, every drop of perspiration that they exuded was all about reform. Suddenly they themselves became very arrogant and, um, you know, very elitist. And it's so for me, when you get a reformist individual in power, that is just a first step. That is not carte blanche for complacency. It was great Obama's there, but the fact of the matter, so many black men were still incarcerated. The fact of the matter is Guantanamo was there. There were drones in Afghanistan. So all my, all I'm saying is you have to be vigilant and you must never believe your own press release. You must never think you've made it. That is the tragic flaw, the Aristotelian tragic flaw. So that would be the first thing. Um, the second thing is, um, precisely the hubris of the people in the Aquino administration and the idea that they were the keepers of the democratic flame. The idea that, you know, the revolution against Marcos was, was held by a few families, my family included. That hubris was precisely that what led to the Duterte's of this world you know, street talking, you know, cussing and just, just uh, the, the John Wayne swagger, 
you know, that appeal, you know, was very much there because of the elitism of, you know, liberals who felt that they were so pure and so good and so clean. When in fact they weren't, they were just generations away from their own ancestors who were themselves bootleggers. So, um, when Duterte became uh, president, I felt, well, I don't think that I want to be in a government where women are disrespected on a daily basis. But I stayed because I, many people said to me, well, if you leave, then who's going to be around to offer checks and balances in the culture field, which is a conversation for another day. And so you've now left that space um, and you're back in academia and, and you, 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 you write uh, a lot. So can you maybe share what's animating you today? What, what's driving what you're trying to do today? I started out being part of watching the Black Lives Matter movement here in the U.S. and, you know, joining all these rallies and um, seeing all the anti-Asian hate going on in the context of COVID. And I started to think about what does Black Lives Matter and pulling down of statues mean for countries in the developing world that have a different tradition vis-a-vis -vis monuments. What does it mean for a country like the Philippines? So um, I am animated by the fact that I no longer have an academic advisor, delightfully, and I, even more delightfully, no longer have a boss, a principal, most of whom are not very intelligent. And so the, the joy of being able to just Say what I think now is 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 wondrous, and um, I'm writing about the very people that I was not able to do more for in practice. Um, and when I was in uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, there was a statue of a comfort woman was a sex slave during the Japanese occupation. Um, and that statue was pulled down in the middle of the night so that the Japanese government would not be offended and would continue giving funding to the Philippines. And my mother had spent years trying to help those former sex slaves. And the fact that the statue was pulled down summarily made me decide to write about it. And I interviewed many comfort women and I studied the political economy of erasure. And I, I studied where did the money from the Japanese reparations uh, after the war that were supposed to go to these former sex slaves, where did the money go? Um, and uh, so that's, something I've been doing and then uh, I write about the peculiarity of Southeast Asian culture in a post-colonial moment when they have not effectively decolonized on so many levels. The last thing I'm writing is about trauma and memory 
And um, I've been interviewing many, many survivors, not only of torture in detention, but also Muslims in a primarily Christian country, who, some of whom were buried alive. And I realized that uh, the Philippines is really very xenophobic and genocidal. It's just that it's not written about. And what I found fascinating when we were speaking earlier and listening to you now is how there's this dominant narrative that's shaped by the, by the elite, the, 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 the Catholic elite of a certain background that just doesn't doesn't give a space to the, the real history, so to speak, of the Philippines. So it's colonial past, um, some of the um, minorities that have been abused and that actually, because they're not part of the narrative, they're not grievable. They, they, their pain doesn't exist. Exactly. Lila, it's been a fascinating conversation and I, I feel a mix of emotions. That I feel delighted that, that we were able to touch on so much, but I'm, I'm also... A, a little sad that that we only scratch the surface in so many things that uh, warrant a, a longer conversation. So I'm going to put you on the spot and, and ask you if you'd be happy to have a, a second conversation at some point that we can have you back on, on this podcast, especially talking about these cultural narratives and, and how how a country basically chooses who it, who it adopts and who it rejects just based on, on that, that social discourse. I would love to... Uh... Yes, the whole idea of who is a hero and who is not, it's a deep conversation that I've been researching. So yes, I would be delighted. Thanks. And so we, we have a, a kind of a little tradition on this podcast, which is um, because very many times these conversations touch on so many things. We we, we struggle to find a, a an elegant way of, of wrapping things up. And so um, we'd like to wrap it up with kind of three um, quick-fire questions and answers, um, which are on a slightly more light-hearted note. Um, so the first one I'd like to, to ask you is a, a um, something you've read recently that has changed you. Are there any number of books that I could say have changed me? But honestly, what has really changed me were these chilling one-on-one -on -one interviews with Muslim men and women uh, telling me their stories that are not in any archives, are not written about. Um, and so reading the affidavits uh, and pouring through the medical legal reports, I'm sorry, I wish I could say that what, but, in a way, this is primary research. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's not tertiary where there's a book already handed to you. You're doing the book. Because it's part of what you were saying is it, it's not in the book because it's not part of the narrative. <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be in my book. I'm going to write it. And But yeah, it's an anthropologist's gold mine. You know, when you have these recordings and you see the 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 forensic examiner uh, analyzing what was done to a body and you have to rewrite it in a way that is engaging and interesting. Uh, that's the reading. I mean, uh, 
why do human beings torture? That that whole question of gratuitous violence, which goes back to the old interest in in genocide, which is really the question of why do human beings, unlike animals, kill and cause pain more than is necessary for survival? That is the overriding question that I've asked myself, the metaphysical question. So, sorry, it's not a book, it's, it's affidavits and, and interviews. And I, I'm, I'm hoping we, we, we get to, um, to share that book um, on this podcast once it's, uh, once it's yes. out. Yes. And then a, a second question is, is there um, a habit or a ritual that you're using now or practicing now that's really improved your life? Well, I thought about that a lot, and I have a lot of very bad habits, which we will not go into. Um, but I would say the one good thing I have to say for myself is I discovered how wonderful waterproof clocks are. And I have one in the bathroom. And now I am not late. And I realized that all my life I was late because I couldn't see the time in the bathroom. And so, yes. That's that a is, good I think that's a good yeah. fix. We can all. We I can highly all recommend. <laughs> it sounds like an easy one. And maybe one last quick one is Is there, a, having moved around the world like that, is there a place that has a real special meaning for, for you? Istanbul. I, I, it's on the, the confluence of east and west, from eight hills overlooking the Bosphorus. It's just magical. It's enchanting, haunting, lyrical. I went there when I was in college, and I went again with my husband two years ago. And it's just, I would live there if I could. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Lila. Over to you, Siri, if you wanted to uh, invite any final questions or final well, comments. Well, I, I like the idea of Istanbul because I, you know, I think you really do, you know, your background and your, you know, all of these different sort of, um, you know, when you think about, you know, the the confluence of the rivers, you know, the waters there and the Mediterranean. And, and I think I can kind of see that in you a little bit. You know, you have all of these rushing, <laughs> rushing waters into you, and they're, and and I think they've created this sort of whirlpool of of curiosity and and passion and and you know I I think the things that you're working on are so amazing and and important, and I I'm really just glad that you're doing this work and you're you're telling these stories because there we don't know them they're 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 untold and um it really takes someone like you who who has the interest who has the expertise and who has the ability to sit and listen and then to share these stories so i really commend uh what you're doing and and want to encourage you in this work and and thank you so much for sharing some of that with us today well thank you you too um it's really been a joy and I really appreciate that you were both such careful listeners and just I loved the questions and to be continued. So thank you, thank you and take care. Thank you, yeah. thank you, Lila. Okay. Thanks for listening. 
If you're enjoying this podcast, there are a few ways you can help. Please click the follow button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also consider becoming a supporter by visiting at the coalface.buzzsprout.com. Thank you.